You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Well, as we come to the end of the book of Leviticus, I want to take some time and remind you where we've been and how this book not only fits within the Old Testament, within the entire canon of Scripture. Leviticus exists to answer the question, how can mere men dwell in the presence of a holy God? And if you want to put it this way, the question is posed in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. This is when they assemble the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord descends. And in a verse that has a very strong double entendre to it, it says, Moses was not able to enter or minister in the holy place because of the glory of the Lord. Now that's a wonderful thing and and God is blessing the tabernacle. But as it leads us into Leviticus and as we see the death of Nadab and Abihu, we are asking this question, how can anybody dwell in the presence of a holy God. If God says, I'm going to be with you, children of Israel, I'm going to lead you into the promised land, build me a house, how are we as mere men able to be near God like that? And the book of Leviticus answers that question. And we've talked over and over again about the center of the center of the center. The center of the Torah is Leviticus. The center of Leviticus is chapter 16. And the center of chapter 16 is the sprinkling of the blood in the holy place. The day of atonement is the answer. How can men dwell in the presence of God? Through the shedding of blood for the remission of sins which of course is, is all a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. But related to that, it's not simply that, it's mostly and most importantly that, but it's also the system of sacrifice and cleanness and holiness that was laid down here. This is the most important thing, but it's almost like your salvation, being born again is the most important thing, but there's more, right? There's, there's obedience that comes after that. There's walking with the Lord and being sanctified that comes after. So to outline the book, you remember Leviticus has a strong chiastic structure, which one more time, a chiasm, the Greek letter chi is the letter X. So this outline is shaped like half of that X in that it starts outward, it moves in, and then it moves back out. And that each section parallels the other on their way in. You see this in a lot of the Psalms. You'll have a verse that will say something about the Lord and then something about man and then repeat what it already said about the Lord. So what these structures show you is you start one way and what happens at the middle, you come back to the same path you came on, but it's different now. So we began in chapters one through seven with the book of sacrifice. This was what is a burnt offering? What is a grain offering? What is a guilt offering, etc. And that was followed in chapter eight through 10 about the ordination of the priests. So we're going to do these sacrifices. Who's going to perform them? It's the priesthood. And we've talked an awful lot about the significance of the priesthood in the book of Leviticus. And that's also where we see the first death in the book of Leviticus. There are two deaths. The first one is when God kills Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire in his holy place. Following that, uh, chapters 11 through 15 are the cleanliness laws. 
And these are the laws about which foods are to be eaten, what to do with leprosy, what to do with dead bodies, and we, we see the importance of being clean. So you, you could say in a lot of ways that going into the Day of Atonement is all about being ceremonially prepared for that. And chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. I've already mentioned that. When the scapegoat was released into the, the wilderness and there were the two sprinklings, one for the priest and one for the people on that holy day. And then coming outward, paralleling the cleanliness laws, we have the moral laws in chapter 17 through 20. And I, I have talked at length that you have to be careful about how finely you want to split what's moral and what's ceremonial in, in the law. But for the structure of the book, it, it makes an awful lot of sense. So you have the moral laws talking about sexual morality, talking about justice, and that kind of thing. Then you come back to chapters 21 and 22. Again, we're talking about the priests, but this is much more about the separation of the priests, how the priests are unable to engage in even everyday kinds of uncleanness and the high priest, for example, was not even to mourn for his family because he was not to make himself unclean for a dead body. Then in chapters 23 through 27, you have, in parallel to sacrifice, the book of festivities. And you can see how we've gone from offering sacrifice to now celebrating in the Lord's presence. And this is also where we had the second death. This is where we had the man who was half Egyptian, half Hebrew, blasphemed the name of the Lord, and then was put to death by the people. So you can see that now the people are taking responsibility for the, the enforcement of holiness in God's presence. Again, you can see the parallel, you can see the mirror, the switch. So that's the structure, that's how Leviticus works. And as we just read in these first two verses, God is summarizing all of his law with just a couple things here, which is against idolatry. You are to worship the Lord alone, reverence his sanctuary, and to keep the Sabbaths, for he is the Lord. So really all of this boils down to worshiping the Lord and him alone in the prescribed manner and keeping his laws, the Sabbath. So heart and hands, you could put it that way if you like. God will do this a couple times throughout Leviticus and even in tonight's passage, saying this is what it's all been about. Now, the rest of the Torah, so we had Genesis, Exodus, now Leviticus. We have Numbers and Deuteronomy to go, which of course is a discrete section of the Bible. It's, it's written and meant to be read together, just like the minor prophets are meant to be read together as a whole, the book of the 12. And how does Leviticus fit? Well, it's the center. In Genesis, we see the people leaving the promised land and going to Egypt, which is of course a broader picture of the fall from grace and the fall from the garden. Then in Exodus, they're liberated from Egypt. They're brought through the wilderness to the mountain of God. Leviticus, right in the middle, is what happens at the mountain of God. They form a covenant with the Lord, and he establishes his presence among them. And that's what Leviticus has been all about. Numbers is going to be the inverse of Exodus. We're leaving the mountain of God and going to the promised land. And you all know it's going to be a 40-year journey, not the way God planned it, but something's going to happen to mess that up in the middle. And then Deuteronomy is them preparing to go back into the promised land. So that's what this, this is. The Leviticus is the center. It's like, if you're going to come back to my promised land, more largely, if you're going to come back to Eden, back to relationship with God, what has to happen in the middle is you've got to meet God and his blood has to be shed to cover you. And tonight is all about commitment. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Because God, in chapter 26, is going to give them the blessings and the cursings that are associated with his covenant. Almost as if to say, 
Y'all ready for this? Are you sure you want to commit to this? If you're going to dwell in my presence, if I'm going to be with you, there's going to be a cost to pay. There are consequences to being close to the Lord. Jesus said it this way in Luke 14, 27 through 28, about the cost of following him. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You know, when we were planning this building project, we sat down and we counted the cost. And then we communicated that to you so that we could make it happen. And when it seemed like things were costing more than we thought, we brought that to you as well. Because the Lord has taught us to be diligent with our finances. Well, how much more so when it comes to matters of the Spirit? He says, if you're going to follow me, don't you know that it's going to cost you something? In fact, it's going to cost you everything? Well, the same thing applies here in Leviticus 26. It's, it's, it's almost as if to say, don't attach yourself to God flippantly. Because he takes it very, very seriously. And chapter 27 will further emphasize that, talking about vows. To be a Christian means to be all in for Jesus. That's a poker term, right? You, you, you've got your, your hand of cards, and in order to see the next bet, you've got to put everything you've got in order to meet it. So if you lose that hand, you lose everything. That's what it takes to follow Jesus. You're putting all of your spiritual chips on Jesus Christ. And if I die and it wasn't Jesus, I've lost everything. That's what it takes to take up your cross and count the cost. You hold nothing back from him. You lose even yourself in following him. So let's see how the Lord presented this same truth to his people, Israel, and see how it applies to us as New Testament Christians. Let's read verse 3 down to verse 13. These are the blessings if you're taking notes. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This chapter very much feels like it should be the conclusion to the book of Leviticus as we read things. It really feels like a good way to sum it up and put a period on it. Uh, it's not, but it, it does in a lot of ways function in that respect. As, as we're coming to the end of this, the Lord is going to lay out what is and is not uh, coming to you if you keep his covenant. And this is very much in line with how ancient contracts and covenants 
we're done. This is what's called a suzerainty treaty. Don't worry about the word if you've heard it before. This is that same kind of thing. That when a king made a treaty with people, usually when he was conquering them or you know, some their kind of constitution, there would be the list of what the king's going to do, what the people are going to do. And then at the end, they would have a list of blessings and cursings. So this is right in the genre of the day that the Lord spoke to his people in a language they can understand, which is pretty cool. And we also know that in just about every example, the blessings were always a lot shorter than the curses. So that also is right in line with what was done during the day. And we're going to see this, that in this section, we got a couple of verses of blessing, and then the rest of the chapter is curses. But what makes this one different, and in fact, the differences of the Bible between the rest of ancient Near Eastern literature are far greater than their similarities. So there's limited value there. But this one is personal. All of the old treaties, they would say things like, and if you do not, may Baal send thunder and lightning upon your crops, or may Asherah cause your women to be infertile, or that, that kind of curse that would be said. But here the Lord is making it very personal. I will or I will not. And that's what sets this apart, is this is not something that people are making together. This is God making a covenant with people. And that, that's the, the whole premise of the Bible, isn't it? That God has actually spoken to us. And I'm going to just summarize this for you for convenience sake. There are four different blessings that God promises to those who keep his covenant here. And they all start with P, because I went to seminary and I learned how to do that. Number one... <laughs> Number one, produce. God promises that he will send rain and abundant crops to the people. This was an agrarian society. And uh, we still, although most of us are not doing that kind of work, if there were to be a trouble with our crops, then we would run in trouble rather quick. I think we've kind of even seen, I'm not making any kind of political statement, just chill out. But, you know, in the recent years, when things were very disrupted, we saw how easily it would be for even our very fine-tuned systems to get out of whack. And we all didn't know where we were going to get our toilet paper from, right? <laughs> you remember that was, that was all going crazy and now the supply chain is still causing trouble and stuff? Well, that, that just shows you just a little bit of disruption causes problems. And we are entirely still dependent upon the crops coming in and the farmers doing their work. So how much more so in this society where your food came from your fields. So the Lord tells them, if you serve me, I'm going to send rain and abundant crops. And don't you like how he says, by the time you finish harvesting one, it's going to be time to sow the next one. And he says, you're going to have so much in storage, you're going to be throwing out the old stuff to make room for the new stuff. Most of us, God has blessed us that way. Bread gets stale before you have a chance to finish it. Praise the Lord for that. We should, we should praise him for that. So number two is peace. Peace. God promises to keep them from war. I'm not going to let nations come in and ravage you. That's something else our nation has been blessed with for such a long time, isn't it? We haven't had a war on our own soil, not counting like something like Pearl Harbor, which was that one attack. But I mean, since 1812, when they burned Washington and they attacked Baltimore, like that's a long time that the Lord has given us peace in our nation. We should be thankful for that. But he says, when battle does come, and Joshua is going to tell us that God would allow battles to come up periodically so that the men of Israel would know how to make war, right? He didn't want a bunch of sissies growing up in Israel. He wanted them to be strong and ready to roll. But he says, when you do fight, I'm going to make you mighty in battle. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000. 
Number three is prosperity. Just, I'm going to make you healthy. I'm going to multiply you. You're going to have children. You're going to live well in my promised land. I mean, that's kind of what you expect, right? It's flowing with milk and honey. And I also have to point out again that we ourselves are living in a prosperous time. You know, hard times for us are like, oh no, I, I can't have the brand of cereal that I want. You know, I, I can't get Lucky Charms. I have to get Marshmallow Mateys this week, you know. And I, I'm being a little silly, and I know that we have hard times that comes along. But when you put them in perspective to what's happening to those people that Pastor Bill talked about a few weeks ago in Uganda, you know, where hard times is we don't have anything to eat at all, period. Where is it coming from? We're prosperous. And even if we were to fall on hard times, at least in this church, I've seen it happen many times. We pick each other up and we help each other out and we get each other back on each other's feet. We're blessed in that way. And the fourth was God's presence. God promised to be with them, which is, again, the whole point of Leviticus, that God will be with you. Remember at the end of Exodus, the crisis point of Exodus was not the Red Sea. The crisis point was when the children of Israel built the golden calf and God told Moses, I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel and I'll let you go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses kind of said, well, we're going to sit right here until you agree to go because we're not going if you don't come with us. So here the Lord assures them of his presence. And we experience these blessings as well because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ Jesus. There's two ways to understand the blessings of the Bible. And the first way is natural. Natural, meaning if you keep God's law, naturally, you're going to have a better life. Proverbs talks about this an awful lot, right? He says, if you get up early and you work hard and you save your money and you don't lend it to any sketchy people and you don't commit crimes, you're going to be blessed and you're going, to have, you're going to have stuff. And he says, if you don't mess around with somebody else's wife and you don't look with lust on young virgins, then you're not going to have trouble in your marriage. Now, things happen, obviously, but that's not the point Solomon's making. He's saying God's laws are good. And when you keep them, good things happen. So if you're tithing and if you're, you're working diligently and you're keeping the Sabbath and you're letting your crops rest every seven years, then you're going to be prosperous, God is telling them. But there's also a supernatural aspect to the blessings of God, supernatural blessings, which is that God actively intervenes in the lives of those who honor him. He says, I will honor you if you honor me. And if you dishonor me, then I will dishonor you. We're going to get to that in a second. And this is important for us to remember. Now, theologically and exegetically, exegetically means as we study the Bible to find out what it means. Exegetically, these promises are for Israel the children of Israel in this time. It's very easy to see that in context. It would not be right for me to open up this passage and say, five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and claim that promise and say, now, now go out and fight a battle. All right, that's in the Bible, but where is it contextually? What's the context of this, right? Now we have to know that, that these are not universal blessings that apply all the time everywhere. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that do apply all the time everywhere. Harp on those, <laughs> not the other ones. The problem is we know that God was making a nation here, not just blessing an individual life. So we see a lot of material blessings, and so we want to claim them for ourselves, you know? Well, I don't want to tell you not to do that. I want to teach you how to do that. That these blessings were for God's chosen people, Israel. And in fact, they remain in effect for Israel. God promised in the book of Romans, right, that the, the gift and the calling of God are without repentance. So it's not for just anybody to come to this and say, oh, God said it, that's mine. 
But here's what it does say. It does teach us that God blesses people who keep covenant with him. We also, here as Christians, are in a different covenant with the Lord. In fact, Hebrews calls it a better covenant, the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And if God pours out these kind of blessings on those under his old covenant, according to the flesh, how much more so will he pour out blessings for those in the new covenant, according to the Spirit? We say, oh, those are spiritual blessings only. We don't get anything physical. Not so fast. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33? We sang it a minute ago. He said, don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We might say, keep my covenant. And all these things, and in this passage, these things are referring to material blessings and possessions, will be added to you. In the same way, we receive these same four natural and supernatural blessings from God in Christ. Psalm 84, verse 11. Did you know the Bible says the Lord God is a sun and shield? The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Your blessings are not enumerated word for word in the New Testament. Do you know why? Because you have something better. You have Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who said to you, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Isn't that better? Which would you rather have, a big book of blessings or access to God to ask and receive whatever you want? Well, not whatever I want. Well, okay, no, not whatever you want. If you're not going to spend it on your pleasures, you know, Micah's like, I want to pray for a billion zillion dollars. Like, for what? So I can buy a bunch of candy. Well, no, you're not going to get that. God's not Willy Wonka handing out candy to people, right? But the Lord says, come and ask and I'll give it to you. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. He's inviting you to come and pray and to ask and receive. Don't limit God's blessings just because somebody else overemphasizes and overinflates what God has promised. It's true. We're on a different mission. In the church, God is not making a nation. He was making a church. Our job is to go into the world and spread the gospel, and that will involve suffering. It'll involve hardship. It'll involve deprivation. But that does not mean that the Lord is not going to give you blessings in this life. Don't be afraid to pray for them. Don't feel unspiritual when you pray for a blessing. Because the Lord loves and delights to bless His people. Consider Job. God loved his righteousness so much, he just gave him everything. Because we've got a good father. Jesus said there is nobody who has given up house or family or possessions who will not receive all of that a hundred times over in this life and in the life to come. God loves to, to bless his people. And that's what this passage teaches for us, even if this was not specifically written to a New Testament church. It's good to serve the Lord. We ought to walk with hope and expectation that if you honor God, he's going to honor you too. I found that when I ask for blessings, very often God will take me to some place in my life where I'm falling short. He says, okay, I'm not saying no, but now that I have your attention, let's work on this. Oh, not right now, Lord, I got to get to this. He's like, hey, I've already heard that prayer and I'm working it out in the background. In the meantime, let's work on you. Okay, fine. And then you see the Lord bring you through that. And then by the time you're done, you're hardly worried about the blessing anymore because God's changing you from the inside out. And then it comes and you just give him all the more glory. So I'm just trying to teach you this so that you, you're not deceived by those that'll tell you if it's in the Bible, you got to get it. Okay, yeah, but the Bible is, is a book. It's not just a, sent, a book of pithy sayings that you can pick out and grab, right? Read it in context. This is a law book for a specific nation, but what it reveals about God is consonant with what we know in the rest of scripture, which is that he loves to spoil his kids. Amen?
Okay, let's keep going. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I think there might have been a collective gulp the first time they heard that. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. That's where that proverb comes from, if you've ever wondered. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight. And you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas, meaning I will not accept your sacrifices. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So in stark contrast to verses 3 through 13, these are the curses for disobedience. And again, the genre of this kind of literature, the curses are always longer than the blessings. They want you to get it. And he traces a sequence of punishment that gets worse and worse and worse. And every time they reject that discipline, the Lord says he will increase it sevenfold. Every time they defy God. And in fact, there are seven different judgments God says he will bring upon them. 
The first is the judgment of fear. He talks about defeat, but the main thing is that you'll be afraid in the land. Even when no one pursues you. There's a proverb that says, the wicked flees when none pursueth. Right? But he says, you're going to be afraid in your land, even though nothing that bad is really happening. I'm just going to make you unable to enjoy what I've given you. And the little things that happen are going to mean a whole lot more to you. Man, have you ever experienced that? Where the Lord allows you to live in fear, and even though outwardly your life seems fine, all these little things are so much worse? Number two is famine. The exact opposite. He says your, your sky is going to be bronze and your ground is going to be honor. No iron, no rain, no crops. Famine is going to strike the land. That'll get your attention. That's what the Lord is trying to say. He's going to remind them. Like in the book of Haggai, this happens. He says, don't just think that this is a scientific process. You plant seed and it's going to grow. I control what happens in my planet and especially in my promised land. And I will withhold this from you. Number three, beasts. I'm going to turn the animals loose on you. And that's something we don't think much about because we've got animal control and everything else. But, you know, you even read not that long ago in the, the days of the pioneers living out in the, in the woods. I mean, wolves and panthers and bears and rattlesnakes. And I mean, you, you would try to move just, oh, we're going to go from Tennessee to Oregon. Now that's just, you know, it's a couple, couple days drive or just a couple hours flight. But I mean, it was bad enough to have the elements against you, but the animals too. And in our case, I mean, you, you get a plague of rats or you get, you get infected dogs or that kind of thing. It can cause trouble real fast. Locusts would be in this category. Number four, a siege. Not only are they going to be attacked, but they're going to be ravaged by the enemy, chased into their cities. And it's very fascinating to do this study that in some places in the Old Testament, God doesn't seem to like cities very much. And I don't really know if I've worked that all the way out. And there is something to be said that at the end, the Lord sends a city down, New Jerusalem. But there's a lot of little passages like this where judgment is being chased into your little cities. And how the Lord preserves the land and the villages, but you can buy and sell houses in the cities, no problem. This may be something to do on your own time. But of course, during a siege, not only is hunger a problem, but famine and pestilence. People would get sick. Diseases would spread rapidly. Uh, sieges could last years where you're living in this one little city in this confined area. And this is, of course, something that Israel would experience a lot. Number five, then, is, is defeat. So not only are you going to be in the siege, and then the siege will break, like in the days of uh, Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and people like that. No, no, no. It says you're going to be defeated. They're going to get inside. They're going to sack your cities, and this nation is going to overthrow you. Followed by number six, exile. I'm going to drive you out among the nations. You're not going to be in my promised land anymore. And he says the land is going to be so messed up and so desolate, the conquerors aren't even going to want it. It's like when Rome salted the fields of Carthage so that nobody would ever want to live there again. You're going to conquer the land and say, what good is this land anyway? We were fighting for this. God's land of milk and honey says, I'll dry it up because of your sin. Number seven is, is I, just what I call devastation. Just the people are living in fear. The sound of a driven leaf causes them to be afraid. They're powerless. They're impotent to do anything. And this mighty nation that God led out of Egypt will have fallen. And I hope you noticed also those seven things, fear, famine, beasts, siege, defeat, exile, and devastation. The Lord connects this to the Sabbath year, which we talked about some last time. And this would be fulfilled in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. 
uh, when Jeremiah prophesied that it would be 70 years. They had been in the land for 490. They had not once kept the Sabbath year. So God sent them into exile for 70 years. And this sequence was exactly fulfilled in the history of Israel. My intention on Wednesday nights is just at the very least to go all the way straight through to Nehemiah, to the last historical book in the Bible. I guess Esther would be the last one, but at least in terms of what happened to the people in the land, that they did this. And all these things happened, culminating in a terrible siege of Jerusalem and exile that happened in 586 at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And if you read Jeremiah, if you read especially Lamentations, Chronicles, and Kings, it tells you about what the siege was like. And I'm going to read some verses from Lamentations here, which Lamentations is a giant poem weeping over the fall of Jerusalem. I, I always think it's a shame that the Bible does not get enough credit in terms of its poetry and the beauty of its literature. It just kind of gets cast aside because it's a religious book. But it's, it's really heartbreaking to read. But Lamentations 2, 20-21, written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he said, Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? And the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. A siege was a terrible thing. And then the sack that would happen afterwards. If you've ever read the Iliad or the Odyssey, it talks about the siege of Troy and then what happened afterwards and how they just ceased being a nation after that. That's what happened. That's what would happen to cities in these days. But Jeremiah looked out and he says, this is exactly what you promised. You read about it in Chronicles and Kings that the women were eating their own children because they were so hungry. And you might think, oh, that would never happen. That also happened uh, most recently that I can remember in Ukraine uh, in the early 20th century when the famine, the Holodomor as it's called, when the, uh, the collectivization of the farms caused the, the famine to break out in Ukraine. And you read the stories and they're just tragic. But I mean, people were, you know, dads were having to run mom out of the house because she had lost her mind and was trying to kill the children and eat them. And, and it's, it, hunger will bring people to terrible places. And we read this and you go, do we really want to do business with a God like this? And that's not a bad attitude to have if that's where you start. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to never forget that it is the Lord God who is in our midst. This is the true and living, almighty, powerful God of war that is in our midst. You read in the Gospels that whenever the people realized that Jesus had done a miracle and that God had been among them, the people were afraid because they said that kind of God was in this building today. And it freaked them out. Now, I'm not telling you that you should run from the presence of the Lord because you can't anyway. Just ask Jonah. You're welcomed into God's presence, but you still got to remember this is God Almighty that we're talking about here. And these curses also are very similar to the blessings in that they are both, number one, natural, and number two, supernatural. If you walk contrary to the ways of the Lord, you're not going to have a great life. If you walk in promiscuity and sexual immorality, you're going to end up with all kinds of baggage and trouble. You're going to leave a string of broken hearts, not to mention your own behind you. You're going to maybe end up with children that you weren't prepared to have. Diseases can come into that. You've been taught to cheapen the most beautiful thing that God has created between a man and a woman. 
And all of that could have been prevented by obeying the Lord in the first place. And I've said this before, that in that sense, you find out that the, the commandment was the blessing in the first place. But it's also a supernatural curse that the Lord will step in and oppose people that raise their hand against him. And likewise with the blessings Christian, you are not subject to these exact curses. I always find it funny that people want to go in and claim every promise of God, but they don't want to go through and claim the curses that come right after that. Well, those don't apply to us. Yes, exactly. But there's still something to learn from there, isn't it? Not least of all, the fact that Israel suffered this exact fate for rejecting Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul said, Wrath has come upon the Jews at last. And you read the stories of the second destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Emperor Titus. And history tells us that the, the conscripts, the Roman soldiers, were so eager to destroy the Jews, he couldn't even restrain them in their viciousness and their violence, which was of the Lord, because God was bringing judgment against his people. I mean, if not keeping the Sabbath year for 500 years can cause God to judge them, how about nailing the Messiah to a cross? And it brought judgment. Likewise for us, although we are not directly responding to these curses as New Testament Christians, the Bible says that Jesus bore every curse on the cross by becoming a curse for us. But what it teaches us is that God does not suffer men to flaunt his instruction and he will punish the wrongdoer. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. Now, whenever Paul says that, he says that because this is something that a lot of people are deceived about. A lot of people get this one wrong, Paul says. So hear me now. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That makes sense. If you plant carrots, you're going to get carrots. So if you sow to your flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What the Bible teaches us is that God is still in the business of judging and punishing nations, families, churches. Read Revelation. I'll remove your lampstand from its place, Jesus said. And individuals for their sins. Herod was struck with worms in the book of Acts that ate him from the inside out because he refused to give God glory on his big day. God is still actively involved in the world. Don't ever forget it. God did not stop pouring out blessing and judgment after Jesus. Things are different now, but they're not that different. If you want to claim God's blessings, you've got to remember the other side of that coin. But the best part happens in verse 40, so let's keep reading. But, after a long string of curses, you want to hear that word, don't you? That contrasting conjunction. But, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their inquiry, or the iniquity, excuse me, they make amends. That's kind of like how John the Baptist said, go bear fruit worthy of repentance. Verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths. There it is. While it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, 
When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in exile, but God didn't abandon them, did he? But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. This is the most wonderful part of this chapter. God reminds us that covenants are forever. And when you make a covenant with our God, he's kind. He says, if after all of these curses, the people repent, God will restore them to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says that the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Here's a little lesson for you. Sometimes God will forgive you, but you still got to pay the penalty of what you did. I have to say that to people in prison every week. God has forgiven you, but you're still paying back what you've done. But he says, I'll, I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to let the land enjoy its Sabbaths, and I'm going to bring you back just like I brought you out of Egypt. And if you read all the prophets during the exilic period, when they describe them coming back out of Babylon, they use a lot of Exodus language. They're trying to bring the people back to that memory. And this is, of course, what happened. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, Daniel says, I realized, making my calculations, that the 70 years were over. So I got on my face and I began to fast and pray for God to restore the people. And that's exactly what God did. And not only that, it's exactly what's happening now. Just as the children of Israel were exiled after crucifying Jesus Christ, Israel is a nation again. There's a place called Israel again. I was doing this with my sons the other day. They were doing their devotions and I brought up Google Maps and we were looking, look, there's Bethlehem and there's Jerusalem and there's Nazareth. And they're like, oh, that's so good. It's the Sea of Galilee. That's so cool. And Capernaum. It's like, these are real places. And they're inhabited again, just like God promised would always happen, right? He says, if you go away, I'll bring you back. Ezekiel 37, you know the story of the dry bones? That was a prophecy of God restoring Israel from exile in the last days. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is why we cannot believe that God has cast off Israel forever. To say nothing of the fact that Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says, Has God forsaken his people whom he foreknew? And he says, God forbid, may it never be. What are you nuts is my favorite way to translate that. What, you think God's abandoned Israel? No. What are, you, are you crazy? Because, not just because God is merciful, but because you can see it right in front of you. We just read it. Restoration from exile was part of the covenant. So when Israel is exiled, that is still within the bounds of the covenant they made with God. So you cannot use exile as evidence of God being done with them because God has made provision for restoration from exile in that very covenant. I hope you can see that. Exile and restoration are part of the provisions of the covenant. So to say, oh, look, see, there's no more Israel, so clearly God's done with them. 
The Lord says, it doesn't matter where I've scattered you for how long or how bad, I'll bring you back because you're my people. And you can see throughout this chapter that God specifically called all those judgments discipline, right? Not utter destruction, but discipline like a father. God works to create a nation or a man into a fully formed reflection of his own character. That's what God wants, is for each individual and every group of individuals to be a perfect reflection of his own character and the nature of his son, Jesus. That's what God is working for in your whole life. Everything, every up and down he takes you through, that's the goal, is for you to be a true image bearer of the image of God. And that requires parental discipline. You've got to discipline your kids. If you don't, society will have to. And I'm sure kindergarten teachers do not enjoy receiving children that have received no discipline. And the Lord says, I'm a good father. Revelation 3.19, the Lord said, those whom I love, I rebuke and I chastise. So sometimes God's judgment, as you just read, is of a severe nature. I mean, sieges and, and sacks by the enemy. So then what do we do when we find ourselves in those places? When you brother or sister, are at your lowest in life, it's repentance that is key. Turn back to the Lord and be restored. It's as simple as, do you want to live that way anymore? No, I won't. Do you believe that Jesus is the true Son of God and that He can help you? Yes, then God has forgiven you and you're back on track. It's that easy. Well, it's that simple. It's not always easy, is it? But look at what John said, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you see, in, even in that verse, there's an Old Testament law duality going on there? If you confess your sins, what? He will forgive us and cleanse us. Clean hands and a pure heart. The ceremonial cleansing and the moral obedience. These were Jews that were writing your New Testament, right? They thought in Old Testament terms, and sometimes you can see that. It does not matter how far you have fallen. Joel 2, God says, I'll restore those years. Just like Job. Remember Job lost everything and then God gave him double back when it was all over? He'll restore to you everything good and withhold from you whatever was not helpful. Don't you thank God for that sometimes? He takes something away from you and he takes away all the bad stuff and he gives it back. Like he takes the orange juice of your life and he removes all the pulp and he gives it back to you. Maybe you like pulp in your orange juice. I don't. <laughs> These are the blessings that God has promised. I will bless you. And if you walk in sin, I've got to punish you like a good father punishes his kids. But I'll restore you when you repent. I refuse to let some weird prosperity teacher rob me of the actual blessings that God has promised me. By saying, I don't want to be like that guy so that I miss what God has actually said. I don't care if I sound like them sometimes because it's what God has said. But I hope you can also see that a relationship with God, dwelling in the presence of God, the theme of Leviticus, dwelling in the presence of God is not just showing up for your blessing. It's committing to God, for He is God and you are not. Never forget that. We are dealing with the Most High Creator of heaven and earth. Jacob referred to God one time as the fear of Isaac. The idea being, my dad wasn't afraid of anything except the Lord. And that's the right thing to fear. Amen? 
but he's so compassionate, he allows us to repent and be restored. We finish the chapter. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Once again, we are still at Mount Sinai. We have not left. There's more to this book in chapter 27. We're going to go much faster through that chapter. But you can kind of see that chapter 26 serves as a reminder to Israel of what exactly they had committed to at Mount Sinai. When you encounter God, there is only blessing or cursing. There is no in-between. Deuteronomy 30, 19, it says, I had set before you life and death. And it's up to you. God does everything necessary. This is an Oswald Chambers point I'm stealing. God gives you everything spiritually that you need, and it's up to you in the moment to make the right decision. That's how free will works. God gives you everything you need to make the exact right decision. Consider where Jesus said, if you're not, not with me, you're against me. Jesus, that's so binary. We don't like that word now, right? It's so binary. Well, yeah, because God is one of those people. You know how you say you, you, you love him or hate him, but you can't ignore him? And you meet somebody who's actually like that and it's not so comfortable. Jesus is like that. You can't do halfway with Jesus. Because then you read more of what he said and he forces you to the point of decision. That's what God is like. So you likewise need to decide if you truly want to follow Jesus, you've got to count the cost, Christian. And the cost is everything you've got. But the blessings you'll receive on the other side will make the rest of it look like a bunch of rubbish, as Paul said. And the following section, even though we're going to go through it pretty quick, is going to remind us that to serve God, you've got to be all in, baby. It's got to take skin in the game. And that's what the Lord finishes the book of Leviticus with. Let's read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 27. And we're going to do these sections very quickly because it's pretty easy to get. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord, so that's what we're talking about now, involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from five years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver. And for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. This section, chapter 27, concerns vows made to the Lord. These were commonly connected with celebrations, and they were valued, as we're going to read, according to the year of Jubilee, which is why they're included in this section of the book of Leviticus. The Nazarite vow, which we're going to read about in Numbers, was included in this. You'll see that David and Saul and men will make vows in the Bible. Paul will talk about how he had made a vow to the Lord and how he's going to pay off somebody else who had made a vow. Now, what we're going to see is if a person had promised something to God, they could redeem it. They could get it back and not give it over. But what they had to do is they had to pay a certain amount plus. So what he's telling us is how to price it out if somebody wants to redeem something that they've promised to the Lord. Number one is people. 
A person could make a vow of their labor or a dependent's labor, meaning one of their servants or one of their children. 1 Samuel 1.28, Hannah brings Samuel to the temple and says, I have devoted him to the Lord all his days. And he tells us, if you have devoted your time to the Lord and you say, for whatever reason, maybe there's a tragedy in the family, I need to go back, I can't continue to serve at the tabernacle, whatever the priest might have needed, anything like that, then you had to pay a certain amount. And he tells us what each demographic basically had to pay. If you were between 20 to 60 years old, men were 50 shekels, women were 30. People between 5 and 20, so a young person, 20 shekels for men, 10 shekels for women. From infants to five years old, men were five shekels, women were three. And if you were older than 60, men were 15 shekels and women were 10. Now, a lot of feminists have written a lot of very angry Bible studies about how, see, God values women less than men. No, these are not statements of intrinsic value. These are statements of economic value. Because what you're volunteering is your labor. And in this culture, what you're volunteering is physical labor. So men are going to be stronger to work in the fields. They'll work longer in most cases. They're not going to have to take time away in their uncleanness because of their menstruation or having children or anything like that. So this isn't hard to figure out. It's just not politically correct. So there you go. Now, if a person could not pay this, the last thing he says is the, per, the priest could adjust the rate to fit the person's situation. So if you dedicated your time to the tabernacle, but you could not keep it, you dedicated Samuel to the temple, and now your other three sons died, and you need somebody to come home and work the farm, you would have to redeem them by paying the money. Verse 9. If a vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, that is a clean animal, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, think horses, donkeys, that kind of thing, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation." So you could offer animals as a vow to the Lord, either as a sacrifice, as in, if we win this battle, I'll sacrifice 10 sheep to the Lord. That would be an example of a vow. Or, Lord, if you get me out of this mess, you can have my best mule. That would be a vow to the Lord. Now, clean animals had to be sacrificed. If it was like a sheep or a goat or an ox, you couldn't pay that back or even redeem it. And you also couldn't say, could I give you this gimpy sheep instead of this healthy one instead? Malachi 1.8, the prophet rebukes them for doing that. You couldn't do that. If you wanted to redeem an unclean animal, like a camel or something, you'd have to pay the cost of it plus 20%. It's also the same amount as for a guilt offering, which is interesting. It was supposed to cost you something when you made a vow. So God is discouraging people going back on them. Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price and it shall be his. You could dedicate a house to the Lord. Probably this is a house in a closed city, like we read about before. And the priest would come and 
basically appraise your house and figure out how much it cost. Probably prior to the official vows would have been worked out ahead of time. And if you wanted your house back before the day you had vowed, if you say, you know, a traveling prophet is coming into town, I dedicate this house to him until the prophet has to leave and you need it ahead of time, you would have to pay 120% of the value of the house. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. So there's your baseline valuation. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore, that is, ever again. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord." In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. So the fourth thing is fields could be vowed to the Lord. And this is perhaps meaning not the land itself, but the produce of the field. As in this year, when I work this field, everything goes to the Lord. And a field that could produce one homer of barley seed would cost 50 shekels, and that was their baseline for determining value. Now, since the land would be returned in the year of Jubilee, the price of the land was valued accordingly. So if it was in the year of Jubilee and you had the full 50 years remaining, you would have to redeem it at 120%. If you did not redeem it for any reason, when the next Jubilee came around, it would pass into God's hands permanently. If he had only bought the land, remember, if you bought the land, it was yours, but it would go back to the original owner at Jubilee. So if you bought a land in one year and then you vowed it to the Lord the next year, when the next Jubilee came around, you'd still have to pay the redemption price and it would go back to the original owner. You couldn't like rent somebody's land, then dedicate it to the Lord. Now he doesn't have his land anymore. All right. And in verse 25, we get the standard measure of a shekel, which is 20 geras. That's about 12 grams of silver. So go check the market price on silver, and that can tell you what that would be today. Verse 26, but a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. So God makes the point, you could not vow firstborn animals and then pay the price and get them back since the firstborn were already his. You remember this? The firstborn animals and even the firstborn children belong to the Lord. So if you say, I vow this sheep to the Lord, it's the firstborn sheep, and then you can pay the price and get it back. God goes, nice try. You're not getting out of it that way. 
He also says that a devoted item, so if you vowed a house or you vowed a field to the Lord, you could not redeem it. So you can't say, I vowed this field to the Lord. I wanted it back. So I'm going to get my cousin to come and pay the redemption price and give it back to me. Now you can't do that. Nor can you sell it to somebody else and try to get it back in Jubilee for free. It belongs to God. Once you've devoted it to God, he says, that's mine. You have no more rights to it. And finally, he says a devoted person, which means devoted for destruction. We'll read this phrase a lot in the book of Joshua. Shall not live. Saul lost the kingdom because God devoted the entire Amalekite nation to destruction. And instead, Saul kept a lot of the nobility alive. And that's when he lost the kingdom because they had been devoted to destruction. Point being, once something is God's, you don't get to change your mind about it. Hey, just kidding, Lord. I'd like that back, please. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Don't be so quick to say, Lord, I promise if you get me out of this, God takes that seriously. And that has not changed, even though we're not living under this ceremonial system any longer. Verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, so that's how you would tithe your critters. You'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, tithed, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad. So you count nine good sheep, and then the Lord gets the bad one. Neither how shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. As in, if you try to do the old switcheroo and try to give God the one that is not so good and you keep the good one, both of them go to the Lord. <laughs> so this is tithing. The first tenth of the harvest was to go to sustain the Levites. And then the Levites would give their first 10% to the priests to support them. There were also tithes for the sanctuary. There were tithes for the poor. It really amounted to a lot more than 10% when you add it up. There were several tithes that they would give. Now, why would you want to redeem some of your tithe? Well, maybe you needed food and you had a lot of cash and food is hard to come by. So you would pay 120% to get it back. He also reminds them, you don't get to pick and choose what you give to me in tithes. Now, listen, tithing is no longer specifically mandatory for New Testament Christians, but 2 Corinthians 9, 7 that the, says the Lord loves a cheerful giver and that you should give generously, not under compulsion. That's why I don't make a big deal about it, but I don't mind reminding you that you need to be giving your first fruits to the Lord. It should just be non-negotiable, not discussed. It's the first line in the budget, and then you move from there. God will bless you for it. Well, what do we learn from all this thing about vows? To be in God's covenant is to have regular interaction with God. You need to have skin in the game. You can't just be reaping the blessings that God gives and worrying about the curses. This last chapter points us to a, a relationship that you're having with God. You're contracting business with the Lord. How wonderful is that? You have to partake in all of it. First Chronicles 21, 24, King David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them for the full price. What's going on here? David wanted to offer a sacrifice to the Lord at this spot. Read the story. It'll tell you why. And he said, I want to buy your threshing floor. He said, David, I'll give it to you if it's for the Lord. But David said, no, I will buy it. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David had the right idea. 
It should cost you, and it does cost you to serve the Lord. Your life, your wealth, and your labor belong to Jesus. Don't withhold it from him. And we read the last verse together. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So the question that we asked at the beginning, and really at the end of Exodus, in the beginning of Leviticus, is how can mere men dwell in the presence of a holy God? Now, the question was posed in Exodus 40:35 when Moses could not enter into the tabernacle because of the glory of the Lord. But the question is answered for us in Psalm 24:4, which sums it up real nice. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in your holy place? Whoever has clean hands and a pure heart. And isn't that the two prongs of what Leviticus was all about? Cleanliness and obedience. And it's true for us too. We're clean in Christ Jesus. But Jesus said, sometimes you got to come in and wash your feet, repent of those things, and walk uprightly. And ultimately, it pointed us to the atonement that Jesus bought for us at the cross. So let me ask you, have you found atonement in Christ? Have you had your sins covered by his blood? Because otherwise, there is no forgiveness. And if you have, are you living like one of the redeemed? Or are you just trying to enjoy the blessings and hopefully avoid the curses? Have interaction with your Lord. Once you have been delivered from sin and God has erected his tabernacle in your heart, that's when you can move towards the promised land. And Jesus will show you how to get there. If you will go all in, take up your cross and follow him.